words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to talk this morning about the reading from the book of Exodus, but I want to give you some context, maybe a lot of context, for today's reading. So on the back of the typical sermon outline, you will find a short summary of the last half of the book of Exodus, which you are welcome to follow. So, so these are the answers, not the questions. You don't have to worry about that. But there is a lot that I wanted to... I wanted to show the whole flow of events because there are some really dramatic scenes in this part of the book of Exodus, powerful encounters between the living God and his people and especially his servant Moses. These, they are awesome, even scary scenes at times. And included in one of them is our first glimpse in the Bible of God's throne of heaven. Remember what God is doing here in the book of Exodus. He is forming a people. He is forming his people different from any other people on the face of the earth. This is a radical change, and it shows how far we fall short of the glory of God. I take it seriously. Some people think the Old Testament is too rough. There must have been some mistranslation. Maybe we need to water it down a little. I don't think so. God is doing something here extremely daring and different, fashioning a people who can be intimately close to him. It's a combination of stupendous miracles and very tough love. But everything depended on its success. God's starting point with the Hebrew people, and Deuteronomy tells us he didn't pick them because they were great and strong. He picked them because they were weak and disorganized Remember, they're coming out of 400 years of slavery. And a lot of other Semitic peoples apparently came out of Egypt with them. So while they had the traditions of the fathers, they were in pretty bad shape. And God picked them to work with so that the glory would be his alone. They are called to a higher standard, as the prophets later told us, because they are God's chosen people. And they are meant to be the light to the world. I'd like to go through the sequence in the book of Exodus. So previously to the last half of the book, we know how God worked the miracles in Egypt and he led the people out and they crossed the Red Sea. But after they crossed the Red Sea, where were they? They were in a desert, a pretty barren wilderness. And there were between 600,000 and a million or two, depending on how you interpret the numbers or how you try to analyze it. And there was nothing much around. They were very, very dependent, and they were frightened. And many of them frequently said, why did we come out here to die? So the first thing they found was water that was bitter. And God and Moses went to God, and God said, cut down this bush and throw it in the water and it will become drinkable. And then they had no meat. And so God sent a flock of quail, enough to feed all these people. And then they had no bread. 
And so he sent the manna. And then they had no water. And so Moses knocked on the rock and the rivers of water flowed out. And it's the same pattern every time. There's a need. The people grumble and complain. Moses goes to God. God tells Moses what to do. Moses does it. And this tremendous miracle happens. And God tells him over and over again, trust me. I will fulfill my promises to you. I will lead you to the promised land. And apparently they didn't remember it for more than a couple of days. <laughs> so now the, we are encamped at Sinai. So it says after three moons, three months after leaving Egypt, they reached Mount Sinai and they camped there for a while. They are being prepared for a visitation by God. They have to wash their garments. They have to fast. And they have to stand back. God is going to arrive with a terrific trumpet blast with fire and with smoke. A pretty awesome sight. Remember, he is fashioning a totally new people and he must succeed and he needs to get their attention. In chapter 20, we have first Moses' first meeting with God. He drew near to the thick darkness where God was. He's not going up the mountain exactly yet, but he drew near. And God told him the Ten Commandments, and then he elaborated on them for three more chapters, sort of expanding on the law and how they are to live. And primarily he stresses to them, there shall be no images, no images of me, no images of the Almighty. This is different. Every nation, every tribe had their gods, their god, and images of them. But whenever you make an image, you are limiting in your mind what this god is able to do, what he is like. And so God says, no images. I'm not going to mention much anything about the gospel, but you did notice that some people think that when they brought the coin of tax, remember there's a Roman coin, there were Jewish coins. The Jewish coins had no images on them. You paid the temple tax with those. The Roman coins, of course, had an image of the emperor. And the emperor was worshipped, and he took divine titles. And so the image on the coin was idolatrous. And so some people think that when Jesus said, show me the coin, he kind of, whose image is that on it? Wouldn't even look at it. He didn't have one. He made the Pharisees produce one. No images. Now, at this point, there's no stone tablets. These are oral commands, and Moses transferred them to the people. And he also said a very interesting thing. He said, when you make an altar to offer sacrifice, it's just a dirt altar, just an earthen altar. Or if you really insist, you can stack up some stones. That's all. Nothing that you make, nothing that you fashion, because you will corrupt it. You are a sinful people. You do not know my holiness you will be tempted to make something which you can be proud of. No, just a simple earthen altar or a pile of stones. So then, in chapter 24, they sacrifice animals on their altar, and the people are sprinkled with the blood as a sign that they are making a blood covenant with God, just as people in ancient days made blood covenants. They are making one with the Almighty. And then there's the most astonishing scene. God tells Moses and Aaron and the 72 elders 
to come up on the mountain and join him for a meal. A sacrificial meal, a covenant meal. And it says, they saw the God of Israel. They saw the pavement beneath his feet like pure sapphire stone. They beheld God and ate and drank with him. Apparently, from what we see later, they did not see his face. But can you imagine? They beheld the God of Israel and ate and drank with him. Now, you should start to see a pattern here, too. We have a sacrifice, and we have a covenant meal, and we eat and drink with God. So then is when Moses entered the cloud to receive the stone tablets. So most of the others apparently went back to the camp. Moses stayed for seven days, and then God called him up into the cloud, and he was there for 40 days. And here he receives from God the two stone tablets with the covenant, with the covenant commandments on them. And so this is like documenting the covenant. So before, Moses had told them verbally what they are to do, and they had agreed to do it, and they had sacrificed, they had agreed to a covenant, and here's the documentation. Well, Moses, and along with that, all the, chapter, the instructions for the ark, for the worship, for the covenant, for the priests, on and on. I, call, I might call it the first liturgy meeting. But notice one thing, God gave all the instructions. So the people down in the camp were getting restless. Where is Moses? We may never see him again. He's been up there 40 days, all that smoke, all that fire. He's probably toast. And so, sorry about that. Um, what did they do? They did what every other people on earth did. They made an image. They were told not to make an image, and they made an image. Aaron collected, he thought he could probably talk him out of it. Give me all the gold you took out of Egypt, and I'll make a golden image. And they did it. And scholars, that I, I have a book on this, I looked it up. They think they really meant that they were making an image of Jehovah, of their God, not of the local gods. They were making an image Everybody has an image of their God. They carry it forward with them. They carry it into battle, and he's supposed to bring them triumph. So they think they are going to make an image of the Most High God. This is your God who led you out of Egypt, and God had said not to do that. And then what did they do? They ate, they drank, and they played, just like every other people they had ever known. Moses had said, no images, and they weren't playing bingo. It was a good old pagan bad old pagan orgy. They were acting like all the other peoples of the earth. And God told Moses what was going on, and he said, get out of the way, Moses. I'll just wipe them all out. I'll start all over. We'll get a new people for you. Your people have blown it. Let's start all over. And Moses, what did Moses say? He said, your people. They're not my people. They're your people, right? Moses is identifying with the people, and Moses reminds God that you told Abraham he would have many descendants, more numerous than the sands of the sea. These are your people. You can't destroy them. And God relented. I think Moses is the one who's being tested here. I don't think God had any intention of destroying his people and breaking his promise. 
Moses, remember, was prepared in Pharaoh's court. So he was literate. He knew some math. He knew some astronomy. He knew some architecture. He knew military strategy. And then he spent 40 years tending a flock of sheep in the desert to teach him humility. So Moses passed the test. Moses identifies completely with the people that God has given him to lead. Moses is the mediator, the intercessor for these people. He is not the least bit concerned about him having a great people. So he intercedes and he passed the test and God said, all right, I will not destroy the people. It's not about him. But when he comes down from the mountain, he breaks the tablets. So that's to signify the covenant is broken. The covenant is only 40 days old or so, and it's broken already. And then he burns the calf. It was probably, scholars say, a wooden image plated with gold, not a solid gold. So you could burn it and ground it up and put it in the water, and the people had to drink it. This was done in ancient times when one uh, tribe would defeat another. One king would defeat another. They would bust up the local gods and make people drink them to show how worthless they were. And then it says, who is, Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? And those who are on the Lord's side join up with Moses, and Moses tells them to execute the people who instigated this idolatry, this rebellion, and 3,000 people were killed. 3,000 was a small percentage of the hundreds of thousands or a million or so, a small percentage even of the men. But they were, had to kill even their brother if he had led the rebellion. This has to be wiped out. Nothing must stand in the way of God's purpose. But Moses intercedes again for the people, and he said, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out too. I don't want anything for myself. I just want your people, your promises to be fulfilled. And God says, only the sinners will die. So then it's, God says, it's time to leave. It's time to depart for Canaan. This is chapter 33. And he says, God says, my angel will lead you. Not me, my angel. Because if I lead you, and I see what you're carrying on. I'll get mad at you again, and I'll what? threaten to wipe you out. It's my angel. And they put up a meeting tent where God would go to talk to Moses, but the meeting tent was outside the camp, about a half a mile or a kilometer away. Sort of the same idea. God has to stay over here because if he gets too close to them, his wrath will break out again. And so it's the meeting tent where Moses has the conversation with God, which we have in our reading today. When Moses went into the tent, and God descended on the tent with a column of smoke and a burst of fire, people were terrified. They would stay in the camp, and they'd look out across that half a mile to see what the heck was going to happen next. And Moses would go there to talk with God, and it says he spoke with him as a friend face to face. Well, we know again from the next part that it wasn't quite face-to-face. -face. He was in God's presence, but he couldn't see his face. And here is where Moses says, Show me your ways. Show me how these people are to live so I can teach them. They're your people. I don't want you getting angry at them again. 
show me how they're supposed to live. Let me teach them, and hopefully we can get along together. You can follow your ways. And then he says, you go with us. Moses didn't want an angel leading them. He wanted God to go with them. And God says, I will go with you. And then is when Moses says, let me see your face. And God says, nope. You will see my goodness. My goodness will pass before me, but you cannot see my face. Again, Moses is being very daring here, and God is saying, not yet. we got a long way to go before anyone can see my face. So Moses now goes up to Mount Sinai the second time. This time he takes the stone tablets, and God writes the covenant agreement again, the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. And then God puts Moses in this little cleft in the rock, and he passes by saying, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and mercy, slow to anger, quick to forgive. And if you look through the Psalms and the prophets, this is God's constant description of himself throughout the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, quick to forgive, punishing the children to the third and fourth generation. There are consequences, but stowing his blessings to the thousandth generation. And after this, uh, Moses carried out all the instructions God had given him. They built the tabernacle. They built the Ark of the Covenant. They made the priest's garments. And they set up the covenant, and God descended upon it and filled the covenant with, with his presence, with the smoke. And as they departed for Canaan, he went before them as cloud by day and fire by night. He did go with them. Now we do know from later history that the Jews, the Hebrews, Hebrew people would be the proper description at this time. Jews would be after the northern tribes were destroyed. They really weren't much better at staying faithful to God than they were here. But there was a faithful remnant from which the Messiah came. And that faithful remnant exists to this day. It's almost like the very existence of the Jewish people is evidence that God keeps his promises we live in a very orthodox Jewish neighborhood. We see this constantly. So then we have the reading from the book of Hebrews, and what a difference. So it reminds us how scary it was to see God's presence on the mountain with the fire, the smoke, the warnings not to touch the mountain. Even an animal that touched the mountain must die. What's different? What has changed? Aren't you glad that you can come here without fear and trembling? Or maybe we should have a little more fear and trembling when we approach the altar. God hasn't changed. He is still the same. He is holy. He is set apart. There is to be no image to limit him. Sin hasn't changed. It is still an evil which cannot exist in God's presence. So what has changed? We have a greater mediator. We have Jesus, the greater mediator than Moses. He is the new Adam. He has completely identified himself with us. He has accepted responsibility for the whole human race and offered himself in perfect obedience to God's will as a sacrifice to atone for our sin. And this is enough to bridge the gap, a new, better covenant. So we can approach the mountain 
without fear and trembling. Even though we are still sinful in some respects, even though we are far from perfect, we can approach without the fear. The mountain that we approach first, of course, is the Mount of Calvary, where we come to lay down our sins, to confess our sins. But then we can approach God's holy mountain, God's throne in heaven, where Jesus has gone before us constantly offering his blood as sacrifice and constantly interceding for us far more than Moses interceded for his people. But there is still a warning. There is still a threat. Hebrews 10.26 gives that to us. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. If we depart from the faith in Christ, there is nothing left. There is nothing else to save us from the just wrath of God. And Paul also warns us of that in 1 Corinthians, speaking about the table of the Lord, which we are about to approach. Some eat and drink judgment unto themselves, for they do not properly discern the body. This is serious business. We are still called to be a holy people, the royal priesthood for God. We are still called to be God's light to the world. And people see us, they are supposed to get a glimpse of the love of the Father. Can we see the face of God? Philip asked Jesus that at the Last Supper in John 14. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Have you not seen me? Do you not know that when you have seen me, you have seen the Father? If you want to see the face of God, look at Jesus. He is the image of the uncreated God. Even though the glory is veiled for now, we could look upon his face. Eventually, we will see him as he is, face to face. And he will know us thoroughly and completely, and we will know him as he is. Do you really want that? Isn't that a little frightening? There is a price to pay for holiness. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.